Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CP Pod. Wow. Episode one, first guest. I wanted to launch things with someone that cares deeply, that bridges the gap between the reality of everyday life and the expressive universe of art. And so, I'm delighted to have with me over the phone spoken word artist Patrick de Belaine. He is one of the most influential spoken word artists and performers in the country, Canada, in case you're listening from somewhere else in the world. He's a poet, but also a community leader and organizer, a teacher, and a mentor to many young people striving to tell their stories aloud. He's the recipient of multiple municipal, provincial, and federal grants, the creator of the Rebel House Project, and he's worked with household names such as the Toronto Raptors, the NFL, and World Vision. He's the director of Toronto's only Poetry Slam for Youth, BAM, Toronto Youth Poetry Slam. He's been featured on CBC and TED, among others. He is someone I consider a true artist, a wonderful storyteller, and I'm happy to say a collaborator, and a friend. So, without further ado, here is my convo with Patrick de Belen. So, hitting record, and we're good to go. Okay, awesome. Check, check, check. How are you, man? Uh, I'm, I'm holding up. Yeah, I'm trying to be creative and, and staying at home. It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird time, and and since I don't know exactly when this will, uh, come out, I, I should say, and maybe we'll cut it out after that we're recording remotely because of this COVID nineteen pandemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not ideal in this in the home studio uh, here sonically. Uh, so if you hear cars going by, wind, floors creaking, radiators. Or whatever is going on on your end, Pat. I know you said your dog was yeah, roaming dog, the yeah, halls. Yeah, dog walking and... around you. Anyway, no, this is what's happening. And we're trying to make the best of it. We're trying to be creative. And it feels to me like doing this, talking to each other, is a form of catharsis. All right. With that being said, let's begin. The first thing I was hoping to do was for you to tell us a little bit about what you do and your work for people that might be unfamiliar with it and with you. Yeah, uh, I am a storyteller of many different kinds, but spoken word is my main thing. And I also produce events. I'm an arts educator and I mentor a bunch of other young artists and kind of like pseudo manage them and their kind of careers as budding emerging artists. So, yeah. And how would you describe your work as a spoken word artist? What are you trying to say to express with it? Yeah, it is. It's a coping mechanism as well as a form of expression. And that's kind of just like the the foundation of it all. Um, but yeah, use it to del- re- relay messages to the world, um, two groups of people, to one person. 
tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a spoken word artist. We've never talked about this. Is this something that you always wanted to do, or is it something that imposed itself, spoken word? I was always an artist. I was always a storyteller. I was writing songs and kind of rapping and um, kind of dabbling in many different forms of storytelling. Um, spoken word, I uh, and I kind of like met in high school. I, I had a poet come into my English class and kind of do a performance and a workshop. And um, yeah, I, uh, I thought it was a very interesting and um, attractive kind of art form because it didn't kind of subscribe to certain regulations and kind of limitations that I was used to in other forms of storytelling. And so, um, yeah, I took a particular interest and kind of went from there. And how did it become a profession for you? Do you see it as a profession or a calling or? Uh, it, yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. Uh, I'm not afraid of calling it a profession, um, but I'm also not afraid of calling it a calling as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a bit of both. And I became a professional. Um, I don't know. I say when the majority of like my income Uh, came from doing workshops and doing only things related to art and spoken word. So probably in um, my early 20s. Was there a ramping up in terms of your performing and your writing? What did the trajectory look like? I uh, was in a competitive thing called the Poetry Slam and did pretty well in the competitive element and... Um, earned a title and that title um, got me into different rooms and uh, more people started paying attention and from there uh, members of the institutions like teachers or people who work for CAMH or people who work with jails they started to kind of like see me and take a particular interest in what I'd be like in their rooms and it blew up after that so it just became really popular and um, so yeah I would say the competitive element in the poetry slam is what kind of like helped me get to that point. Are you competing much these days? These days? No, no, no. Um, yeah, I haven't in years actually, but I organize them still for young people and emerging artists. We'll uh, go back to the work that you're doing in the community later on. Cool. But for now, I'm curious to know who or What were your influences when you first started out and were developing your craft? Anything comes to mind? Uh, yeah, uh, I tell many people this, but um, in terms of my, like, uh, the profession and how I approach the art in a business way um, is Dwayne Morgan. He's uh, another spoken word artist in the community. Um, he's the he's just he's the godfather he's uh he's kind of like known to be the first of a lot of different spoken word related things in canada and in terms of my art form i don't know like i just like hip-hop and rap music i'd say is the biggest inspiration in terms of my style and how i choose to portray my messages um but yeah so who's the go-to's on your playlist when you want to get inspired 
Oh, word. Oh, that's hard. It isn't really, <laughs> it isn't really like a specific person. Like I like people like, um, you know, like in times it was Kendrick and times it was J. Cole and times it's like really weird shit and times it's X and times it's, uh, you know, R&B and times it's Drake. Like, I don't know, like it just, it's more so the, the genre itself and how it changes and what it speaks about. Um, I kind of love the waves it goes through and and use that to inspire the things I talk about and the way I package my art. So yeah, I love a lot of rappers, old, new, um, and no one specific kind of inspires my work, but um, the art, the, the genre of, of that itself. But honestly, just music in general, I feel like it's a big inspiration to how I write my poetry. Mm. And so what about your creative process? How do you go from life to idea to a finished piece how does the writing happen for you mm. um yeah I get, uh, this is a good question i mean i feel like a lot of artists get asked this question and, and it's a good one because um there are a lot of similarities to some answers and differences uh, i i uh i like to use the analogy of like an intimate relationship um when it comes to how i uh write my poems so you know like you meet um, somewhere in any random situation, you catch eyes, and then the idea or the person becomes really important to you. And then you pursue each other, um, and you learn about each other, and then that's like the honeymoon phase. And so writing about each other and, or like writing about it or learning about each other becomes easy and fun and, and super blissful. And then the next stage is the hard part when honeymoon stage is over and you the hard shit begins and you kind of ask each other questions of whether or not you're going to stay together is are you willing to put up with the bad parts of each other and then there's a moment where you like kind of just know that you'll be together forever and um, maybe you still change but you change for each other or mutually and um, it's usually small edits at that point but um, but yeah and then and that's kind of how my poems kind of start and end really to me. So some poems I just like date briefly. Uh, some poems I, I marry and are a part of me forever. And um, yeah, it really depends. You know that analogy makes you seem like a bit of a creative polygamist. Oh, right? abs uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would say that like in my, in my intimate relationships, I'm definitely a monogamous. But when it comes to my creative side, uh, I definitely share my love with a lot of different um, poems. That That's okay. You're you're allowed to, to have your feelings. What about the performance element? How do you take a piece that you feel is ready has arrived and get it ready for the stage or wherever mm. else you're performing it. Um, yeah, a lot of the time it depends on the venue and on the space. I get asked to be a part of different platforms, some that are a little bit specific, like let's say a mental health conference, and some as very like kind of open, like my own show. And so um, some poems will make it into both platforms, some make it into uh, only one or the other. And um, I don't know, you just kind of really feel it out and it's uh, different for every piece. Um, I would say that most of the poems that I marry, um, that become a part of me, are ones that I share. So I would say that 
that's usually the the process where if I do perform it, it's going to be one that I am very close to and do often. Um, yeah. What about revisiting older work? Is that something that happens a lot or something that you feel comfortable doing? Uh, yeah, that does happen. Um, yeah, I, uh, I look at it in different ways. I um, Sometimes I'll change things if I feel like they're um, they don't reflect the current times or what I believe about that message. Or sometimes I'll leave it the way it is if if I believe that it reflects a version of me that um, that I'm proud of or, or that I'm honest about, um, especially if uh, there are other people who are currently in a similar place. Um, yeah, I don't really change it if that's the case because um, people have told me that it helps. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. We were talking the other day about the difference between reading poetry and performing spoken word. And without getting into that specific conversation, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about what performance feels like for you. What's uh, going through your mind, but but also through your veins, through your heart? I'm always curious to to ask this mm. to athletes and artists because it's a special thing that's hard to describe. Perform- yeah, performing. I mean, like even my like co-conspirator is also a performer. Like I feel like I'm around performers all the time. Um, it's a different feeling for everybody. Uh, but I also played sports too. I was a football player. So, um, I kind of like, it's kind of the same really as playing football, but really it's, it's, it's just like, it's, first of all, it starts with overwhelming anxiety almost every single time. It's like borderline crippling. Um, you know, I'm shaking, I'm scared, I'm nervous. I'm kind of like, my um super focused but also just scared and frantic um and then i go on to stage and i'm still feeling that way um until i hear the moment of like an audience reaction so it could be like a snap or a laugh and uh the moment that happens i turn 180 um every single Ten, like level of tension and problem in my body just disperses and I get into my pocket and um, it is the most at that point becomes the most blissful experience um, ever unparalleled to any other feeling um, that I've ever experienced yeah so that's kind of how it goes usually yeah I I got through film by doing theater first So that's something that I always found very unique in live arts versus recorded arts is that idea that you can find a moment, you can find momentum and then live in it. It's really hard to oh, describe. Yeah, no, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely hard to understand. But like, yeah, definitely that's like a live performance. I'd say that my video recordings are a much different feeling um entirely but when i think performance i think in front of an audience because that's my roots and my background pat 
Next, I wanted to play the recording of your piece, Laugh, for which I was uh, lucky enough to record the video. And so we can listen to it and maybe talk about our collaboration afterwards. Yeah. My great-grandmother's casket didn't have any varnish. The kind of family that made me. There was a box of markers beside her dead body. The kind of family that raised me. My pops draws a penis on the coffin in bright green. Obviously the loudest color in the room. My tita belly laughs when my ma slaps him in the back of the head. But of course, she's laughing too. Because even my dead Lola knows my cousin can turn anything into a cannon shooting rainbows in the eulogy. Ended with a story about us bringing a stripper into her nursing home and... At that moment, I learned that laughing and crying are the same things at the bare funny bones of it all. And I know it feels like these days death is playing Nicky Nicky Nine Tours with all of our friends and that maybe we should have done something sooner. But when it's so hard to be happy, the light can be a dark sense of humor. Like when my brother laid on the hospital bed, his leg with an exposed foot long incision. And the first thing I did was take a picture of it because even excruciating pain, you're the butt of our joke. Even an open wound can't stop an uncontrollable giggle And where I'm from, we call that hope See, laughter is free And like hotel shampoo, we take full advantage Cause this place capitalizes off our sadness So sometimes we force a smile to make a memory useful Even if we don't have the privilege of being candid See, death could sneak into this room right now through the air ducts And my mom probably diss its haircut Well, my dad probably go for a joke related to tight pants Call him an emo and flick away his imaginary bangs We are familiar with tragedy Our ancestors share an intimate relationship with struggle, which made it easier to draw mustaches on our mistakes and rewrite them into word bubbles. We are familiar with suffering, but like good Filipinos, we use furniture to cover it, because laughter is the only cure you can't lock up by your government. It might be backwards, you know, bringing Tupperware to the Last Supper, but we've been a long way so far and more scared of hunger than being six feet under. See, we're so tired of keeping score, and that's why some comedians are busiest during war, whether at each other or with each other. Both sides need a reminder of what they're fighting for. We don't laugh at death, but at the face of it, every cruel joke has some grace in it. We don't know love or pain without embracing it first. So on my deathbed, I pray the tears in my loved one's eyes fall hilariously in irony of how much life I lived while wanting to die. See, I got a friend who buys thousands of dollars worth of shoes when she's mad. I got another friend who gets paid to tell jokes to strangers when he feels sad. I got a friend who gets clean needles from a clinic in the park where she stays. I got a lot of friends with different ways of dealing with pain. And one a day, Feels like God's evil prank. I know these jokes get old, just like my dad's. So give thanks, because your past can only roast you from behind your back. And my Lola taught me survival is to turn around and laugh. As you know, the piece moved me as we discussed potential collaborations. And we can talk about why I respond to it later on. But first, I was wondering if you could tell me what inspired the piece, how it came about. 
I wrote the first version of it um, right after my great Lola died. Um, and it was, you know, it was just kind of like a, it was just for me, actually. I never really shared it with anybody. Uh, that's what it was, really. It was just kind of like when I said poetry is a coping mechanism, it was just that. It was just a way to document a part of my life, and it felt better to write it. Um, and I think I just got into different phases in my life and um, kept returning to the poem. Um, and specifically just like really bad parts of my life and returning to the poem to kind of give me reminders of joy and family. And so I guess the beginning of this year, I decided to um, that I wanted to immortalize it in a, in a way and, um, and immortalize those feelings. And so that's kind of how it became a video, but it really wasn't one of my main video ideas in the beginning, but actually became really important to me. You do tell a lot of personal stories and laugh. It feels very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's all about family. It's dedicated to your Lola. It's about her. How does your family react when you decide to tell not only your story, but theirs as well? Mm. Um... Well, I mean, like a lot of them, it was hard. It was, like, it was not hard, but like we just, there was a lot of crying, unexpected crying at the video shoot, as you know. Um, but um, yeah, it, it was it was hard because, you know, I'm not of the family that um, is used to being that vulnerable all the time. Um, but uh, with some perspective, they were really moved by the experience. And so I'm happy that I did it. And when it comes to, like, telling their story, too, I feel like, you know, like any storyteller does that. Like, it's impossible to be, be a storyteller and tell. I mean, you can, but, like, being a human is being social and being connected. And so the chances of your story interacting with other stories is pretty likely. And so as a storyteller, you're always kind of, like, treading those waters. And um, I think that some of the, my most favorite work is when an artist chose to just be vulnerable and raw instead of um, think too hard about whose story it is, um, but being respectful and open to how it's created and its impact on people. It makes me think what you're saying of even hearing and seeing Casey share stories at the Rebel House and what that means to partake in storytelling together. You're not only sharing something that happened in your family, right? But it's also a perspective. Mm -hmm. While everybody may have gone through the same experience, how you decide to tell it is what makes it art. Yeah, exactly. Like my brother did nef definitely didn't agree with every perspective in the poem, but um, he loved that I wrote it. Can you tell me a little bit about what the process of creating this video felt like? Because when we started, it was a very different idea. Originally, you wanted to focus on having people's laughter on screen. But once we settled on the more abstract concept of reenacting some of the scenes you describe in the poem, I think things shifted quite a bit. How was it for you to go through this together and 
allow me to bring my own interpretations to the table as well. You know, like I said that making videos are different than performing, but it was very a lot like performing a live performance. Like it was a lot of anxiety the entire time. Like I was very nervous and anxious about managing and I guess kind of like helping navigate all of the energy in the room. Like I had so many different kinds of people that know me all in one room. And I think for some people that'd be pretty stressful. Um, and I was very stressed, but then you know, there was just a moment where like everyone left and the video was being edited and maybe I, it was when I saw the first cut, but it just all released and it felt so rewarding. And um, and uh, yeah, so that, that was a process for me. It was anxiety up until the point and then incredibly satisfying. And uh, yeah. How many people did we have on set from your end? I don't even know. I think it was like maybe 30 it's a lot of people and for me as a director there's a couple of things to to think about in circumstances like that the first one is to try and protect the artist give you the space to do what you do because there's a lot of people around and you have to try and focus <laughs> And the second is to try and involve everybody in the process. For me, having playback and having a monitor where everybody can have a sense of what we're creating together is huge. I think having the actors, or in this case your family members, know that we're telling stories together, it feels special. Yeah, I totally agree. Did people talk to you about the shoot afterwards? What that experience felt like for them? Because I'd, I'd never had so many people from the artist side on the same set. How was that for them? <laughs> um, you know what? To be honest, like, I guess I might, I shouldn't even say this, but like almost everybody cried. So um, not a lot of these people like if you listen to the poem like it's all about people dealing with trauma and and with humor so a lot not a lot of these people are used to crying and so they cried in that space and so i don't think a lot of them want to like necessarily revisit the feeling and so they weren't kind of like all like but it was kind of more sacred um than anything else it was almost like a a really important release that everyone just understands was important and can go on set like, we don't got to talk about it again until we watch the video and share it and say how amazing the video is. But, like, it was just a moment that we all shared in that room, and that's all it really has to be. Yeah, there's a record of it that exists and that lives on, right? Exactly. I do want to talk a little bit about the content of the piece, though. It's very specific as to how you grew up and how the people around you grew up, about how diasporic communities respond to adversity. Can you speak a little bit about what you were trying to say with this poem? Yeah, yeah, There's a, it goes through a lot, but I think the common theme is, um, is uh, just not judging people's... Um, way of dealing with pain and uh, 
um, yeah, and I think that's it's just like a common that's the common message and and that um, you know and hope and and finding hope in the darkest of places. I think that's like the common themes, and then a lot of them are just either stories that in my life that reflect those things or kind of fun word play <laughs> um, um, poetic prose. Um, about that specific topic so yeah it spins between story of my great lola story of my brother and some commentary um from me and i love how in the final piece you have the audio of uh the folks in the old person's home <laughs> what'd you do you yeah. sent a stripper to your Lola? Yeah. Oh my my that yeah that was that was my tita. She uh she hired a stripper. She we've done it like four times. It was an annual thing. Um, it wasn't like a one time thing. No, it's happened multiple times. Whoa, wait, wait, hold on. I thought you were the instigator of this. It was your tita. Oh yeah. No, I didn't have enough money at that time to even hire a service of that kind. I think <laughs> um, I required the help of family members to even make that happen and facilitate it. So it was actually my tita's idea that we all um, kind of collaborated on. Um, but yeah, cause this is a family-wide thing, I'm telling you. Like, I am not the worst. I'm probably one of the more tame members of my family. Um, but yeah, it was definitely not my idea. Okay, okay. I, I see. I misjudge you. I thought you were the instigator of this. No, no. I say we. I say we in the poem. Yeah, we, we brought a stripper into her nursing home because it wasn't, it wasn't just me. I mean, I held the door. That's uh, that's great. Anything else you want to say about laugh? Um, anything else I want to say about laugh? Um, thank you to my great Lola and every strong Dita out there who um, is the rock of their family. Um, that poem is for you. And that's pretty much it. Creating in the digital age. You want to talk about that? It's challenging, right? There's Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> YouTube, TikTok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot going on. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm gonna okay boomer you. No, I'm just joking. I won't. I mean, I feel like. Uh, that's oh fine. come on, man! What I are like you? Four years younger than me? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just joking. It is weird, man. It is weird. It's it's super weird, but it's uh it's also interesting and exciting and new and um yeah um i'm definitely not cynical about it like that's not my main feeling about it it's definitely more excitement and um yeah but generally speaking though is that something that for you is enabling or something that you need you need to step away from as you strive to make creative space yeah on, on my best days it's a tool that i use to help distribute art um even even sometimes create art um on my worst days it's uh it's a, a big mental obstacle um but i'm lately having more good days than bad days we'll see If my follower count drops like by a hundred by tomorrow, I might have a breakdown. <laughs> nah, you'll 
be fine. Don't worry about the numbers too much. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm just kidding. Well, that's why I say it's my worst. On my worst days, it's it's that because it, it it totally is. It has no reasoning. There's no rationale behind it, it at all. It's definitely just a feeling based reaction. But it does relate to something that I see you post about the idea that we need to find ways to create and not view the fruits of our labor as a competition. It's the idea that we're making things as part of a community and that we're not fighting for the same views, the same likes, that it's additive. I, I think it makes things more accessible, you know, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad in terms of um, the amount of people that have access to it and how saturated certain communities can get. But um, for the most part, yeah, like creating is just creating and it shouldn't change. Like people, people if they want to create something and share it, they should just do that um, and not really give a shit about whether or not people like it digitally. Yeah, and it's probably a little bit different for you in the stage of your career that you're in where it's not so much about promoting your stuff, but about enabling others. I think it's very exciting to see young artists such as the ones you mentor find their audience on those platforms. How do you see them relate to this technological world in which their work exists. People will sort out the garbage in their own opinions on their own. And so, um, yeah, if people don't like their shit, they won't listen to your shit. And so I think that in, if that's the case, people should just put out what they want and see what happens. Um, but, you know, also... Um, yeah, I, I think that there are certain skills that are definitely, or talent that is definitely um, should be championed a bit more than others because uh, it's it's good, you know what I mean? And and that's and that's kind of the thing for me. It's just like, uh, yeah, everybody go ahead and do it, but if it's going to be trash, then it's trash and whatever, you know. But there's some people that they're going to do it and it's going to be really really good, and that's what the free reign internet looks like. And one thing people sometimes don't realize is that as a developing artist, you have to put out a lot of bad work before you get good. I remember starting out as a photographer and doing split toning <laughs> vignette. Yeah, yeah, and, no, I, I do, I do, I do. You know, not <laughs> the best, not really where you want to be, but you have to make those mistakes and you have to experiment to get to a point where you find your voice. And the way things are organized now, I think is nice because it gives the audience a chance to grow with the artist. It builds community and it also builds loyalty. That didn't quite exist five or 10 years ago when you and I were starting out our respective careers. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, really, it does look different, you know, and I think that, um, yeah, you know, like, you got to do bad shit first, and you have to grow, 
And I think that's the intention. You know, if you have really good intentions behind it, we're backed by a really good kind of skill set and talent that um, it should work out for you. Um, and it'll grow into being something that people will consume um, or not, you know. But I think that's that's usually the case for me. The kind of content I like that comes out during this day and age, it's usually because there's really great intention behind it and still a lot of talent and still a lot of hard work. You know? Let's actually take a step back or, or a step in, I guess. Let's talk about the projects that you are involved in with youth, whether it be events that you're organizing, mentorships, workshops. What does that look like for you at present? Uh, well, like right now in like the <laughs> in the, the COVID-19 times, uh, well, they, things have changed. Let's say pre, pre-COVID. Okay, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to extrapolate once uh, <laughs> this is past, what does that normally uh, look like? My job is definitely not what it has been the past few days. Um, but what my job regularly looks like is is that is like, uh, you know, I have regular events that I organize in spaces with a bunch of people who also perform art as well as like a bunch of different videographers and people who do visuals and usually pair them with visuals every single time I do something and yeah that's kind of it in kind of getting funding from the government to do all of these things um, and then when I'm not doing any of these things I'm like mentoring a bunch of young rappers and, and singers to uh, you know elevate their portfolios too when you're working with people, whether it be mm-hmm. uh, as part of a mentorship or a workshop, what changes do you see happen in people uh, yeah. as they go on this self-expression journey? Yeah, yeah. Uh, s- storytelling um, to me is like uh, directly tied to like your person and like who you are. And so um, I think that I have the benefit of seeing young people become better people as well as better storytellers and having those things being like super kind of layered onto each other. And what do your workshops look like? What do you focus on? Is it mostly anchored in story or in technique Um, yeah, yeah, it's both. It's both. Technical um, aspects of teaching do make their way into the workshop, but they are not the leading force ever. Um, they're only kind of like things to help shape the final product. But I would say I, it, it's very, it's very basic. <laughs> I walk in, I build rapport, I share a poem, I get to know the people in there, I ask probing questions. I encourage them to write their story, something they want to say, and then I encourage them to build the bravery to say it in front of each other. And that's all I basically do. And um, there are, are many different intricate things that happen in between that to make sure the final products are good and vulnerable and raw and unique. Um, but yeah, that's that's what it looks like. This next question I'm always interested in, but I never quite know how to ask 
So let's give this a try. Your role as a spoken word artist is, let's say, at the intersection of art and urban culture. And there's a bit of an erosion of the lines between, say, high art and pop art. And you see it also in visual arts between work that gets sold at prestigious art fairs and stuff that sells online. Even hip-hop and high fashion has more and more interaction. Where do you see your work? Where do you see spoken word on the continuum? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't... I mean, like, there are probably many different answers to this, you know? And, and, and probably when you mention spoken word, I mean, that is that is an art form on its own that you can track sources and kind of histories behind so um that and it's technically has been categorized in in many ways already in certain industries and so um i i mean like i don't i don't know you know like really i I have to be honest with you my main response is like as soon as you said legitimate art i'm just like yeah like like i don't believe in like that at all like you know i'm not even like i'm not an academic person in terms of my artistic approach and therefore I don't believe that like there's a difference you know like I never believed in fine art I never I, I, I always thought renaissance art to me was like just blood and titties man like that's all I thought it was I didn't know what the fuck everyone thought was a big deal about it I think it was beautiful I think it was like amazing kinds of art but in the, in the same breath like there were other cultures also creating amazing art during that period and the fact yeah, yeah, that I for was sure. taught, the, the canon is so yeah, limited. Yeah, exactly, right? And so it's just like that's kind of how I've always pers- like kind of viewed the whole entire thing uh, to me. So the fact that the lines are blurring in terms of other people's perspective, I mean, that's how I've always kind of looked at it. So it's like, um, yeah, so this is a very comfortable time for me where I feel less limitations to dabble in other sounds and other kind of forms of storytelling because people are a little bit more open to the idea of like genre bending or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, But yeah, so in terms of pop art, fine art, and like, um, what's the other one? Um, High art? Or sorry, like pop art, high art, or culture? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So so many adjectives we can... Attached. Yeah, to be honest with you, I can think of a Kanye track that kills all of those categories, in my opinion. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, uh, I, well, I don't know. I would say all of College Dropout could be that for me. Uh, I think there were high art moments. I think 808s and Heartbreak, that whole project, there were high art moments. There was high fashion moments. High art to me is like a level of like, I don't know, like timelessness mixed with a little bit of pretentious vibes mixed with a little bit of... Uh, old European things, I think. Um, so, like, I think Kanye touched on that a little bit in that. Um, yeah, yo, I don't know. But these are things that, like, I'm willing to justify in a very casual, almost stupid, <laughs> satirical way because I don't have the actual language um, to, you know, like, decipher the difference. And I don't really care to, to do that. I think it's very interesting when when 
or isn't. To me, like it's the categories are for me to make sense of shit. It's like for me to organize my Spotify. Like that's all I fucking need those categories for. It's just to be like, what mood am I in right now? You know what I mean? Like that's it. Like am I in the mood to look at a bunch of statues from Europe? Am I in a mood to listen to a bunch of rappers rap outside? Um, it's about a mood, but it's it's less about like hierarchy and and qualifying or legitimizing one or the other. It's funny that you mention 808s because the other day I was actually showing someone the vinyl oh, because it looks the packaging is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and as we have this conversation, it makes me think of Kanye from 10 years ago when he started doing the fashion thing. And all of a sudden you think, wait, all these high fashion houses are collaborating right. with rappers yeah. now. It's fantastic. Or from a legitimacy standpoint, you look at Kendrick winning the Pulitzer. It's all changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, again, I have always seen street art and urban art as high art in my mind. That's what it was. High art is the highest of that art. And to me, it was like I'm thinking of Kendrick or Tupac or Biggie. That was high art to me. You know, that's a, that's the way it was explained. Like, you know, to me, it was high art. When people said high art, fine art, like that's fine art, man. That, to me, in my opinion, that's how I viewed it as a kid. So growing up and people being like, oh, rap music is an urban art form. It's something that's considered not respected in the widely. I was just like, what? Like, I didn't even make any sense to me because when you turn on the TV, it's all rap music. I don't see no classical shit. So where, like, what do you mean? Like, this is the most, this is not fine art. So it made no fucking sense to me until I understood culture and, and, and all that kind of stuff and how art came and the canon and all that kind of shit. Then it started to make sense to me, you know, um, why certain things are viewed as fine art and certain things aren't. But as like, a young artist, I had no idea of that distinction. <laughs> and now you're doing shows and performing with uh, violins in the background, Pat. Exactly, man. Yeah. I always thought violin was dope. Never saw it as something that was fine art. I thought it could be hip hop too. And I'm so glad that I get to collaborate with fine artists now and, and like, you know, classical artists now and, and have them view art as the same way, you know, like Jenna, my, violinist she's like an irish i don't even know she does like all this a bunch of like crazy other classical stuff too and and definitely doesn't really delve into hip-hop or or that as much but the fact that we could work together so well is, is super cool i think that's a great way to start winding down our conversation yeah as we move toward the end of this podcast pat what's one thing you're excited about right now um, yeah, I think uh, I'm excited to see what people do to spread love and joy and hope in a time that's considered dark, darker than usual. That's what I'm excited for is what people choose to do um, with their talents and, and uh, skills. We'll be ending the pod today with your piece, Fear Right. Yeah. But before we do that... And before we conclude this episode, what is the best place for people to find you online? I guess Instagram would be the best place. Um, it's Patrick underscore Debelen. It's D-E-B-E-L-E-N. And I guess you post that somewhere. But um, yeah, and on my YouTube, you can just type my name into YouTube, type my name into any other social media thing, and it's pretty easy to find me. Yeah, absolutely. I will link to 
all that in the show notes and wherever else this is shared. I do want to highlight that I really do believe in the notion that sharing is caring and you've certainly done that with me today. Obviously, we speak all the time, but I want to thank you for doing this formally as an interview and sharing your thoughts on spoken word and storytelling. Thank you for digitally having me, CP. All right. So let's end this show as promised with your piece, Fear Right. I'm scared of heights. I heard it's lonely at the top. Dying alone is a given, but living alone is not. I'm scared of being complacent. I'm hoping for something different. That I'll need a life's worth of photos first before I can figure out what's missing. I'm scared of people thinking that I have a boring life. So I delete photos when they get less than 100 likes. I'm scared that I don't even know if I want to be happy or just find a way to fix it. Burn it all down or if I just need someone to listen. I'm scared of kicking the bucket with the bucket list in my hand. To have grown and withered and still never been a man. When it counted most and I'm scared of being broke and never knowing when I'm rich. And the benefits of a bag can't buy time spent with your kids. And I'm scared of revolving doors. How I do all the work just to miss the window. End up right where I was before. Never having much but always wanting more. Gave up the life so I could hate mine. Can't make money or make time. And they're wondering why we even moved here for. I'm scared of being 60. With a wife that never wants to get naked with me. Faking a smile at family parties for stupid reasons. Like forcing it for the kids as if we'd already see it. Grow up and then repeat it. I'm scared of change and everything staying the same. And if all my hands are due when I don't know what to say. And so I'm always fucking talking, filling dead space, looking for options to fix my problems rather than actually talk about them. I'm scared of losing the people I love and the people I love losing me. That's why I don't own a gun, drive drunk, and spend too much time on the balcony. I just know how fragile life could be. I'm scared that we could just stare at death and laugh. Maybe that's just where we're at. And I'm scared that I don't care whether it's you or me. Life is nice, we're just not too attached. And I don't know what to do with that. I'm scared that no one will love me unless I learn to love myself. When at this moment, I'm staying alive for someone else. And look, I may not be the biggest fan of me, but honestly, part of me thinks that hope and a reflection kind of helps. What scares me most that we don't talk about what scares us. That we'll share everything but what's behind the camera. You said you fear the unknown, but you and me, we met at random. So maybe this time, we don't all feel so abandoned. Because more than heights, I'm scared of being underground. Without saying any of this out loud. More than heights, I'm scared of being underground. Without saying any of this out loud. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of the CP Pod. If you enjoyed what you heard, 
please subscribe or leave a comment and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Take care.